The following message is from Christian Life Austin. For more information about Christian Life, please visit clcaustin.com. Thank you for listening. I've come to preach the gospel to you today. Uh, we, we, last week we talked about the dream. We talked about naming the baby last week. We talked about his name would be John. What we're about to go into is not going to be the same old, same old. It won't be Zacharias all over again. I believe with all my heart that God has given us a John revelation. I believe that God has given us a new, new interpretation of where we're headed. And we're going to be a church that will introduce Messiah to a lot, a lot of people. Because that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Today, I'm going to preach a little bit. But before I do, I was in a doctor's office the other day. I was getting my annual physical and uh, the doctor told me to start to exercise, start my exercise program very gradually. And so I told him that I drove past a store that sells sweatpants. <laughs> Another doctor told a man, said, what fits your schedule better, exercising one hour a day or being dead 24 hours a day? <laughs> Some of you forgot that weight loss stuff at the first of the year. You've already started putting on pounds. One other man told another person, the handle on your recliner does not qualify as an exercise machine. <laughs> but this is my favorite. I read this on the wall at my doctor's office of the day. woman was saying to the doctor, said, I have metal fillings in my teeth and my refrigerator magnets keep pulling me to the kitchen. <laughs> That's why I can't lose weight. <laughs> That's funny. I don't care who you are. That's funny. My subject today is simply this, exceeding magnifical, exceeding, Lord, can you read that magnifical? There it is, it's coming into focus, exceeding magnifical. First Chronicles chapter 22, David said, Solomon, my son is young and tender and the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnifical of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. Then he called for Solomon, his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. I love that. I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 in the King James. said, Now unto him that is able to do all that we ask according to the power that works in us. I did not read that scripture right. That scripture is not read right. Let me read it again the way I put it on the screen. Now unto him that's able to do all we ask according to the power that works in us. Paul said now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. I left out exceeding, I left out abundantly, I left out above and I left out or think and I did it on purpose. Because there's sometimes when scriptures say, look, I'm not a normal verse. This is a God that is an abnormal God. And he wants to do abnormal things to his people. And so I proof text, the text that I read today when David said the temple should be exceeding magnifical. The word magnifical is used only one time in the whole word of God. One time. And it's talking about God's house. It's talking about the house of God. So there's your Bible study. God bless you. You may go home. 
I want to preach today on exceeding magnificent. Turn to somebody and say, I'm going to help the preacher. You may be seated. At the writing of our Old Testament text, David was reigning king of the children of Israel. Can you turn me down just a little bit, Brother Jerry, and I'm a little loud up here. You never heard a preacher say that, have you? I'm a little loud. And at this point in David's life, thank you, one must understand that he had lived a storybook life, the kind of life that many folk only dream of. It was a life filled with many great achievements and acts of extreme heroism. First, first of all, he came from humble, humble beginnings. He served his father as a shepherd boy out in the pasture. In fact, I think that David was an out-of-wedlock child. I think he was a child that was an illegitimate son. He said, in sin did my mother conceive me. Couples that have children do not sin to conceive children. He served his father as a shepherd boy in the pasture. The pasture was not an easy life to live. And we know there were multiple dangers of keeping those sheep. The Bible reveals how David oftentimes rescued his sheep from the mouths of bears and the mouths of lions. And even though man knew nothing about this ruddy little shepherd boy, God saw David even where he was out there just among the sheep and sent a prophet Samuel to find and anoint him as the future king of Israel. The word also tells us that one of David's greatest acts was going up against a Philistine giant by the name of Goliath. And despite the fact that many of the soldiers in Saul's army were terrified of that nine foot six inch beast, David had no fear. In fact, he never called him a giant. He just called him a man that was out of relationship with his God. He called him uncircumcised. Instead of fear, and he put his faith in God. You need to know that today. If you put all your faith in God, there is no challenge that you cannot overcome. Amen. Trust him. David battled the giant without any battle armor. He even refused to wear King Saul's battle armor to fight Goliath. But instead, he took a slingshot and five smooth stones with him to battle. God may not always provide you with the tools that somebody else thinks you should have. But he will provide you with the tools that are best for you in your journey. And if God provides the tools for you, they will be capable of accomplishing tasks that God has before you. And after the slaughter of the Philistines, Saul made David the general of the armies of Israel. Isn't it amazing? He wasn't even old enough to fight. And then he goes and whips a Philistine and Saul said, yeah, I think I'm going to make you captain. It's amazing how you go from a sheepfold to a captain of an army because you whip one giant in your life. David, the anointing of God, maintained a perfect war battle. He never lost, causing envy and malice to creep into the heart of Saul. Just things I'm riding up to where I want to go. And after making many attempts on the life of David, King Saul was finally killed in battle at Gilboa. And David was elevated as the king of the United Kingdom of Israel. And under David, the wealth and the power of Israel began to grow. He defeated the Philistines a second time. He defeated King Hadarezer of Zobah and Syria. He defeated the children of Ammon. And everybody who came David's way were met with defeat and destruction. Now, I'm not talking about a perfect man here. Sounds like I am, like so many of people that I've pastored and many of people that I know and myself. David ended up with a blemish on his illustrious record. He strayed outside the will of God and satisfied his own flesh, and he plotted the murder of one of his own soldiers so he could have the man's wife as his own. But I'm so glad that God, the God I speak of today, is a forgiving God. 
Even in David's wrongdoing, he remained faithful and committed to God. As a heart pants after the water brook, so pants my soul after you, he wrote. He knew who had brought him through all the trials of his life. David knew who had been there with, with him in the heat of battle. And he knew who had never turned his back on him when he needed a true friend. And he repented of his sins and asked God for forgiveness. And God forgave him. Amen. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. God is able and just to forgive us of all of our sins. Clap your hands for that because that's a good thing. However, because of the blood on his hands due to many battles and many fights, David was not going to be allowed to build the temple, but he was able to assist it in the process. May I say by the Spirit today, before I go any further, may I say by the Spirit, to be able to get prepared to build the building of our house for the Lord that God has laid on my heart, and I preached about last week to this church, we as a church body must remove the blood off of our own hands. God desires unity. Psalms 133, it's a blessing. It's the promised blessing. It's the only commanded blessing that God gives on the spirit of unity and togetherness and loyalty to the cause and to one another. Please do not allow your tongue or actions to become a weapon of negativity during this time. And as Forrest Gump said, that's all I have to say about that and I'm moving on. David's son Solomon would ultimately have the responsibility of building the temple. But that didn't stop David from being able to prepare for the building of the temple. Our text today tells of a seasoned and an aging King David. David understood how magnificent the house of God had to be. He knew and understood how famous this particular house of the Lord should be. And he knew that this place would require great preparation and great planning. So the Bible tells us that David made preparation for the building of the temple. So in 2 Chronicles, David got all the masons together to get the stones prepared for the building of the temple. I know it sounds boring preaching now, but just hang on. He prepared iron for nails and for the doors and the gates and the joints. He set aside so much brass and cedar trees that the Bible says it was beyond calculation. He knew that it took what it took to get prepared for the building of God's temple. In fact, in verse 14, he said, indeed, I have taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord. And then I'll put it on the screen, 100,000 talents of gold. That's $5,690,000,000 worth. And 1 million talents of silver. That's $1,660,000,000 worth of uh, of silver and bronze and iron beyond measure for it is so abundant. And I have prepared timber and stone also, and you may add to them. So, One more thing before I preach. One more thing. A chapter before David commands his son Solomon to build the temple that should be exceeding magnificent. David has a problem in his life. First Chronicles 21. He decides that he's going to number the people of Israel, the men especially. Because he feels like that Israel is so powerful and potent that they are making their way themselves. And God is really just a byproduct of that because it's easy when you win every battle that you fight and you go through every struggle without a blemish. It's real easy to get on top and feel entitled and lose the gratefulness that God has put in our hearts and our lives. 
And pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so David started numbering all the people of Israel. And all of a sudden God said, oh, you think you can do this without me? Do you really think that you can do this? I don't care how many men you have. All I need is one with a trusting heart. Because I put a whole army to flight when I put you in the valley of Elah, David. And you killed a giant with a slingshot and a stone. I don't need a lot of people. I need committed people. I need people that understand that without me, they can do nothing. That's what I need in my church. And so David faces disaster. God sent a plague and gave David three options. And he said, David, what do you desire? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punish you for this. Do you want three years of famine in the land? Do you want three months of being ravaged by the enemy that you've never lost to? Or would you like three days of the sword of the Lord in your life? And David said, I'll take the latter because I know you're a merciful God. And God sent a death angel that day. And I know it sounds like negative preaching, but he killed 70,000 men in one day. Just bam, killed them. And God ordered the angel to stop and stand at the door of Aruna, the Jebusite's threshing floor. And when David got to Aruna, he realized that he needed to make sacrifice and make an offering to God to stay the enemy which it was the angel of death. And he goes into Arun and he said, I need a threshing floor. And Aruna said, just take it, sir, just take it. You're the king. He said, no, 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 no. I'm not just gonna walk in and take it. I'm gonna purchase this threshing floor. See, what you need to understand is the threshing floor where Aruna was, was Mount Moriah where Isaac had been sacrificed or gonna be sacrificed by Abraham. And Moriah looked as a twin, as a twin, as a twin peak to Mount Calvary. It was a place of sacrifice and, and Aruna, uh, uh, Aruna had, had built his threshing floor right there. And David said, no, I will not take anything for free. I must pay a price. Let me share something with you. When you start sacrificing to almighty God, there is a price to be paid. The things that we're going to do in this church are not going to be free. They're not going to be given to us. We're going to have to reach in our pocket and sacrifice and do something outside of ourselves because God wants to establish a great work in Austin, Texas, and he's already building on it right now, but the half has not been told what God's going to do in this house. And David sacrificed right there. Now, here's the catch. Here's the catch. Not only was it Abraham's place where he sacrificed Isaac, it was not only the place where David offered sacrifice to stay the enemy of death but it also became the place where the temple mount was established. So the temple mount is established. The church is established. The Old Testament church is established on the mount of sacrifice. Does anybody have any sacrifice of praise you want to offer today? Anybody have a sacrifice of prayer you want to offer today? I want to preach now. Anybody have a sacrifice of worship you ought to offer today? I think this house needs to be a house where praise and worship and giving and being in the house of God ought to be just second nature. Sacrifice ought to be a joy that's unspeakable in our life and full of glory. Somebody said, Pastor, how do you get up and preach at eight o'clock on Sunday morning? I preached at six o'clock on Sunday morning in another country. Here it was six. But I'm declaring this is not a sacrifice. The joy of sacrifice is that you get to do it again. Every time we walk in here, there should be a sacrifice of praise in our mouth. Every time we come in, there should be a sacrifice of worship in our mouth. And every time we come in, we ought to offer God a sacrifice of ourself. 
Somebody say glory right now because the church is going to be built on the mountain of sacrifice. You got to give in order to get. So that's the physical. Now let's talk about the spiritual side of this house. And here's where I want to preach. This is where I want to preach. And I know I don't have a lot of time left. And I may preach into the second service. Because there's going to be tweeners all day. People are going to be coming between because they're confused about the time. <laughs> the first thing David wanted in God's house was a house that was alive and living. See, David knew what it was for a place called Gibeah to have the perfunctory priesthood and the perfunctory duties, but the Ark of the Covenant never dwelt there. David knew what it was to walk past the tabernacle at Gibeah and realize that it was just dead function. Can I stop and just declare something to you right now? I don't want dead function in this church ever. I don't want just perfunctory ideologies talked here and us just go home receiving the perfunctory thought process. There has to be a praise and a worship in this house. Jesus asked his disciples one day in Matthew 16, who do, who do people say that I, the son of man, am? And some of them said, some say you're Jeremiah and some say you're John the Baptist and some say you're Elijah. You know what all three of those have in common? They were all dead. They were all dead. It's great to talk about Elijah. It's great to talk about Jeremiah. It's great to talk about John Baptist, but they all died. But he said, who do you say that I, the son of man, am? And Pete raised his hand. He said, thou art the Christ, the son, watch this now, of the living God. The living God. Can I preach that there is a God that we serve that is not dead. He's not deceased. He's not going out of business. He's not quitting. He's not giving up. He's not resigning. You can't take his power from him. He's the same God that they preached about in the Old Testament, the same God that they talked about in the New Testament, and he's alive and well today. David said there is a living God, a living God. You know, the Ark of the Covenant was something that was so precious because it represented the presence of God. And, and when David became king after Saul, Saul reigned for 40 years and he never asked for the glory of God, the presence of God to come. He didn't care about the, the, the presence of God. He didn't care about the Holy One of Israel coming into their midst. He didn't care. In fact, it stayed at a priest house named Abinadab for 20 years and, and they just kind of pitched it from Dan to Beersheba, just did whoever wanted it could have it. And David decided when he was anointed king that he was going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back. And so he, he, got, a, he got an ox cart and put, put it on an ox cart from Abinadab's house, a priest. And Abinadab had two sons, one named Ohio, Ohio and one named Uzzah. And they started going back with that, with that Ark on that, on that cart. And, and when that cart hit a depression at Nacon's at Nacon's threshing floor, Nacon, not Aruna, but Nacon, that ark, that ark, that ark kind of tilted it, and Uzzah reached out to stable it, and God struck him dead. You know why God struck him dead? Not because he touched the ark, but because he touched the ark out of irrespect. 
Because you see, after 20 years in the house of Abinadab, that ark had become just another piece of furniture. It was not appreciated. It was not admired. And you've got to admire the presence of God if you want the presence of God. And David said the house that we're going to build will have the ark of the covenant in it and the glory of God will reign in this house. Amen. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The second thing that we have to have, David said in the house, is mercy slash grace. Oh, I could preach on this a while. First Chronicles 28, David gave to Solomon, his son, the pattern of the porch. He said, here's how I want the porch built and the houses thereof and the treasures thereof and of the upper chambers thereof and the inner parlors thereof and of the place of the mercy seat. The place of the mercy seat. He called the Ark of the Covenant the mercy seat. Because on top of the ark was a mercy seat where the priest poured the blood and the sacrifice was received by a living God. Let me tell you something. Now stay with me. Some people that don't understand what I'm talking about right now. Every year that priest had to go in and pour that blood to roll the sins of the people ahead. And that mercy seat had not been at Gibeah. That ark had not been there for a number of years. And David said, I put it on Mount Zion when I brought it in and I rolled the curtains up because I wanted everybody in the world to see the glory of God. But I want to take it off and out of a curtain draped building and I want to bring it in the house of God. I don't care how beautiful we build this house, how precious it is in its architect and its wonder. There's two things have to happen. Number one, we must have God's presence in that house. And number two, we must have the mercy of God in the house. People still need to walk in and feel the unadulterated mercy of Almighty God in his house. There must be mercy. There must be mercy and grace. We can't forget it. God, don't let this new house cause us to think that we have arrived. And that everybody is just a look down on material. Everybody will still matter in the new house of God. Because mercy must be in the middle of all we do. In fact, I'm amazed at how many times mercy, when it's mentioned in the Bible, is in the middle of what it's mentioned in. Micah 6 and 8 said there's three things that God requires a man to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Isn't that amazing? Justly and humbly are on the outside. Mercy is the fulcrum of the whole scripture. The mercy is in the middle. Matthew 5, Jesus talks on the Beatitudes and there's nine of them. You know what the fifth one is? Blessed are the merciful. Mercy's God. You know, there was three crosses on Golgotha. A thief on one side, a thief on the other side. Guess what was in the middle? I want to tell you something. I'm going to come down here. I can't do it in second service because I'm going to be taped. But I'm going to tell you, mercy has got to be slap dab in the middle of everything that we do in this house when it is built. Come on, somebody say glory. Somebody say glory. 
Mercy can't be on the edge. Mercy can't be out yonder. It's got to be right here in the middle. And the third thing that David said the house had to be was exceeding magnifical. Wow. And let me talk about that. That's my text. I'm closing. Let me talk about that. The word exceeding is found 57 times in the Bible. The word magnifical is found one time in the Bible. One time. The magnificence there. Magnificat is there, but mag- magnifical is one time. And it refers to God's house that was to be built. Magnificence is the state of being magnificent. Wow, that makes sense. It means splendor and grandeur and sumptuousness and luxury. But magnifical is greater than magnificent. You know why? Because it is a continual growth of magnificent. It's like we're not going to stop at that word. We're going to put magnificol on it because magnificence is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And of his kingdom, there will be no end to the mercy and the joy. And the grace and the peace that he will share with us. So really, what magnificent is, is living in a growth state of magnificence. In other words, when that building is established on this property, on the property of sacrifice, on the property where God dwells, on the property where mercy is abiding, on that property, there's not going to be any end to the kingdom of what God's going to do. It's going to continue to grow. That's magnificent. It's just going to keep growing. Are you following me? Are you with me? Of his kingdom, there will be no end. I am not going to build a congregation, a church in this house, in this town, and see this church become satisfied with where we are. We're in quest of a 10,000 soul revival in this church. And so help me, Jesus. We're going to be a magnificent church that exceeds and continues to excel. Here's your little story. Here's your little story. This is so neat. This is so neat, folks. This is so neat. You know, the temple was dedicated in about 1005 B.C. About 1005. Do you know when... (laughs) Do you know when the queen of Sheba came? You know when she came? You heard that story? She came and she saw the wonder of Solomon's temple and she saw the servants and she saw the joy of how they went to the house of God. You know how many years later it was when she came and observed what God had built back there? 13 years. 13 years. Put it in your little think tank. 13 years. That's three years longer than that building over there has been established. That's just seven years less than what this building has been established. Thirteen years later, she walks in and the glory of the house is still so powerful and so great and so massive and so awesome. 
The Bible said there was no more spirit in her. She just passed out. She fell out. We're going to see people falling out in the spirit. We're going to see people continue to be healed. We're not building a building so we can compete with the masses. We're building a building so the glory of God will be greater and reach further and seat more people and let them feel the living God and experience the mercy of the house of God. That's what it's about. 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 So I was, so I was mowing a yard out here years ago. Randy helped me. I was mowing a yard out here. I used to be the church landscaper. Didn't bother me. I'd do it again. Sometimes I fuss about things. You know, I walk up here and see this tape and I have to recollect every Sunday, what's this tape about? (laughs) Then I realize, oh, it's people supposed to stand here. I got it, I got it. Because I think I need to pick it up. (laughs) Is that all right? But can we be a church? That after 13 years of building a structure that's going to be magnificent and exceed it's going to be magnificent. Can the Queen of Sheba come 13 years after that build is up? Can a king walk in? Can a leader of the world walk in and say there's something special about this house? It is exceeding magnificent. It's not about just a pretty structure. It's about a living God. It's about mercy and grace. And it's about continuing to excel in everything that we do. So now you know what magnifical means. Don't go to a dictionary. It's not in there. I've got an unabridged dictionary. The word's not there. It's one that David made up like, like, like Paul was making up exceeding abundantly above. It's just adjectives that you just can't describe the God that we serve. But it's going to continue to be great in the kingdom of God. Aren't you glad you're a part of the church of the living God? Yeah.